For marketing agencies and social media managers looking to prove the value of their work, I've got something special for you. Agora Pulse is not only Social Media Examiner's tool of choice as an all-in-one social media management tool, it also allows you to track the traffic, conversion, and revenue from every social post, comment, and private message. Learn how to prove your social media ROI with a free training or a free trial by visiting agorapulse.com SME today. Again, agorapulse.com SME. And now for today's show. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. I'm excited about today's show. I'll be joined by Susan Wenograd, and we're going to explore advanced Facebook retargeting. If that's a topic you're interested in, be sure to stick around. Also, if you want to reach me, you can tag me on Instagram at Stelzner, or you can email podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com. And now for this week's brand new discovery. Helping you stay alive in the social jungle. Here is this week's survival tip. This week, I'm joined by Eric Fisher with a brand new discovery. What'd you find, Eric? I found a cool app that will solve the headache of fitting in line breaks in your Instagram posts. It's called Instaspacer. Tell me more. So Instaspacer allows you to not just to fall back on the dots and the dashes and, you know, having to use other characters to make white space in your Instagram photo captions. Instead, you can install Instaspacer on iOS or Android, and then you can write your captions in that app exactly as you want it to appear on Instagram. And then you can either convert it over and copy and paste it or hit the send over to Instagram button and drop it right in. And I mean, this is, I mean, it's a no brainer option. Uh, I'm still confused as to why (laughs) Instagram doesn't let you do that because so many people are creating these great captions and even almost blog post esque captions on Instagram. So this really saves a whole lot of headache and time. So what I'm hearing you saying is the text on the Instagram update will have line spaces as a result of using this tool. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Because again, natively in Instagram, there is no button to tap and go to the next line and space out, you know, bulleted lists, et cetera. But on Insta Spacer, you can create that right there in uh, a blank white space and then you can copy and paste it over or hit again, the send to Instagram button and it will take you over there. Perfect. So this app, you compose it inside of it. Exactly. Can you paste into it as well and it will accomplish the same thing or do you yeah. have to compose? Yeah. If you, okay. if you've got, uh, you know, th- that, that actually would be the way that you would, you know, if you did your, uh, your, uh, hashtag research elsewhere, you'd want to bring that over here too and drop it in and paste it at the bottom. And how does it you- look when you actually publish it over on Instagram? Does it look as if, you know, it doesn't look wonky or anything like that? No, I mean, it, it, it this is that text editor. This is the missing text editor that Instagram needs. Uh, where do we find this thing? Uh, easy way to find it is just to go to their site and that'll give you the link to the iOS and the Android store. It's instaspacer.com. I N S T A S P A C E R 
com. Thank you so much, Eric, for that brand new find. You're welcome. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. And now for my interview with Susan Wenograd. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Susan Wenograd. If you don't know who Susan is, she's a Facebook ads expert, a regular columnist for Search Engine Journal, and a director at Aim Clear, an integrated digital agency. Susan, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm stoked to be here. So today, we're going to talk about advanced Facebook retargeting. And I am really excited to dig in with you on this. Um, I would love, before we get started, Susan, to ask you, why is Facebook retargeting so important? Now, I would imagine many of our listeners have tried it, but some haven't. So kind of just give us the pitch as to why this is so valuable. Absolutely. So there's really two pieces to that question. Um, the first is why retarget at all, which is at this point, I think everyone can pretty much agree that no one just goes to a website off of one click and purchases anymore. Um, it does happen, but I think we, we've all seen that it's a, a long journey to get people to convert. Um, so the thing that's nice about Facebook is it does that particular piece of the journey very well. Uh, first being most people are on there. So your inventory is going to be pretty high. And then the other thing is it has really immersive ad units that most other channels don't have. So you have the opportunity for things like video, different copy lengths. Um, you know, if you're in e-com, there's all kinds of options. So there's a lot more options uh, for the retargeting than there are in most channels. Is retargeting also more economical than targeting a cold audience on Facebook? It can be. Um, it's it's less economical in that it tends to be more expensive but it's more economical in that it's a more responsive audience. So you pay more, but they're worth more. So, so your conversion you know, cost, yeah, the conversion cost might be lower. Is that what I'm exactly. hearing you say? Yeah. The, the dollar amount to reach them is higher, but they're a lot more valuable to your business. Perfect. Um, there's a lot of us, you know, including people here in my own company that have been using Facebook to do retargeting for a long time. And um, chances are pretty good. We're making some mistakes many of us over and over again. What are some of the more common mistakes that you see uh, marketers make when it comes to their Facebook retargeting? I love that question. <laughs> um, there's There are a few. I think the first one that I run into most is I always applaud marketers for doing it, but you know, doing retargeting in the first place. But when I log in and it's basically set to retarget the last 30 days worth of visitors, and that is all that there is. It always mm. makes me a little sad. <laughs> um because if you look at, you know, buying habits and what people do, there's a lot more complexity to the people that come to a website than just the fact they've been there for 30 days. So things like what they did while they were on there, what they looked at, how long they stayed, like all of those behavioral cues really get lost um, when people create retargeting audiences. And then there's also the issue of whether those people are really even still a prospect after a certain amount of time. So you know, if you look at the buying patterns of, or the, you know, lead acquisition patterns, depending on what you're doing, if most people tend to convert within a few days of coming to the site and you're paying for 30 days worth of retargeting, 
you're paying a whole lot of money that isn't doing anything for you. Because remember with Facebook, you're not paying for just anytime someone clicks, you're paying every time the ad shows up. So you're paying for a lot of impressions that are going to wind up going nowhere. So there's usually a lack of granularity, um, whether it's, you know, knowing how long after a visit to retarget or drilling down on what people actually did. So when you retarget to them, you're giving them a message that's actually relevant to what they did when they interacted with your brand. Those are usually the two areas that where I see the biggest misses for, for different advertisers. So on the uh, 30 day thing, obviously this could be a numbers issue, right? Like, so the mm-hmm. advertiser thinks, well, it's a bigger audience, therefore I'm going to target them. Right. But it's not yep. necessarily a, it, just because it's a bigger audience doesn't mean you should target them. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. And especially when you think about how, what people consider depending on how far out it was they visited. So for example, if someone visited your site 30 days ago and you know that there's an education period that happens with whatever it is you're selling, or it's a high price tag, you know, the the things that they're going to think about and the things that they're going to consider from an informational perspective are going to change over time, right? So the further and further they get away from when they visited, you need to entice them more and more because they're becoming less and less of a warm prospect. So you're not necessarily going to want to speak to someone that was at your site the past three days versus someone that was there 27 days ago. Um, so, but when you kind of group them all together in just one group, most people end up just having the one group, they run one ad to them and that's it. So they're not really considering the different steps of the buying cycle when they do that. And I would imagine they're a spending more money to target an audience that doesn't care about them anymore. Right. And yep, B, yep. <laughs> probably sending signals to Facebook that says this ad is not relevant to a big chunk of these people. Yeah, exactly. Um, because you know, the, the click through rate, the interaction on the ads is, is a big, um, you know, signal for relevant score with Facebook. So if you just keep showing it to people, the other thing that happens too, um, and this is one of the, the newbie things that I see as well, but it relates to this is, um, in that, you know, rush to try and be in front of everybody, all the places, all the times, um, it'll be, it could be a relatively small remarketing audience, but they'll put like a thousand dollar a day budget to it. And it doesn't spend anywhere close to that. It may only spend like 30 or 40 bucks of it, but they're doing it so that they're maximizing all those eyeballs. So they're trying to reach all those 30 day people who may or may not actually be qualified, but they're doing it in a way that is likely to make the frequency of those ads really bad because Facebook's going to try and spend your money. (laughs) So you're like, I want to spend a thousand dollars a day even if it doesn't do it, it's going to darn sure try. So that means showing that same ad to the same people over and over and over again. So you wind up wasting even more money that way because now you're talking to people irrelevantly and then you're also doing it a lot of times per day. So they're obviously really happy with your brand (laughs) by the time the day is over. Yeah. I would imagine if they hide your ad, that's going to be a negative signal too, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if they hide your ad, um, Facebook asks for feedback on why. And so you can specify it's not relevant to me or I'm seeing it too many times. Um, and the, the negative feedbacks, um, there's that old saying that like it takes, you know, 100 attaboys to, to get rid of one criticism of somebody. And it's kind of like that with Facebook ads where, um, once you get a negative, you got to get a whole lot of positive to start, to start, you know, offsetting what you get from that. So it's definitely something to look out for. So now that we've kind of revealed some of the more common mistakes that I'm sure many of us have made, um, what is the method that you recommend when it comes to remarketing? And do you have a name for this method? Tell us more. <laughs> I wish I had a fancy name for the it. Wen- really- How about the <laughs> Winograd way? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, we'll call it the Winograd way. How's that? That's, okay. that's great. Cool. <laughs> w squared. <laughs> um, 
So the, the way that I usually do it, um, when I come into a fresh account is first, I want to get a sense for how big is their site traffic in general, because that'll help me know how small to slice things up. Um, because obviously once you're, you know, below a 200 person cookie pool, it's not going to serve anything. So a lot of times what I'll do first is, um, I like to go to Google analytics first because there is a report in there called the time lag report. And it'll show you how many, like they call it events, but it's essentially how many times did they touch your website before they wound up converting. And that is super helpful in trimming the fat like we talked about, where if you look and see that most of your conversions happen within seven days, don't be creating 30-day remarketing ads because it's a waste of time. So I usually look for patterns like that first to help me understand at what point is a visit not really a warm lead anymore and they should really just be considered you know, cold traffic if they were to come back. Okay, wait. So, wait, I want to dig deeper. Time lag, yeah. time lag event. Um, yes. We've got some Google Analytics geeks, including myself. Yes. So, where do we find <laughs> such a report inside of Google? Um, Analytics? It's under, as I recall, oh, you put me on the spot. Is it under, recall, it's probably under conversions, right? Is it that, is under conversions. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's probably under conversions, and mm-hmm. um, I think this is a really powerful report that I remember seeing, and I think it shows you whether or not. Um, you know, what percentage buy on day one versus day two versus whatever, right? That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And then what are we looking for there? Like the bulk of how many days it takes for people to turn into a conversion or something like that? Yes. So usually what I'll do is I'll look and see, you know, what percentage, um, is happening within a certain amount of days. Um, so like if I see that, you know, 80% of the conversions are happening in the first seven days, that's a big clue that most people are going to buy in the first seven days. But the other thing that you'll see sometimes is you'll you'll start to see sometimes natural groupings that might make sense. So you might see there's, you know, a lot of conversions that happen in the first one to three days. And then sometimes you'll see a lag and then you'll see more conversions again between days like 10 and 13 or something random like that. Hmm. Um, and you'll see that, too, sometimes with things um, if there's a free trial. So like if there's a two week free trial or something like that, you'll see patterns like that or a lot of times if it's, you know, 30 days free you'll see that like the post 30 days might have a really high amount of conversions because they got the first 30 days free. So you'll see patterns like that that can help you decide, okay, I definitely want to, you know, group the first one to seven days together, but I do want to have, you know, a subset for the 10 to 14 days or wherever else you see those bulk of the conversions happening. So we're, we're basically writing those down, notating that these are, mm-hmm. these are patterns that seem to happen with customers. Exactly. And yep. those patterns will be leaned into a little later in your process, right? Yes, absolutely. Cool. So once we've looked at Google Analytics and gotten a little data, what's the next part of the process? So what I usually do at that point is um, I'll go ahead and create those custom audiences in Facebook. So I'll hop back over to Facebook. And I tend to make a lot of remarketing audiences that I may or may not use or I may test. So I tend to set up a whole bunch of remarketing audiences out of the gate and then choose which ones to test first. So a lot of times I'll, I'll go back over and I'll create those custom audience buckets in Facebook so they can start populating. Um, and then the other thing I'll do too is I'll take a look at the um, kind of the site flow and the content that people look at, especially with sites that are really content heavy or um, that have you know heavy research ahead of time or they have white papers or things like that. I'll look to see what those steps look like. So, you know, a lot of times in longer sales cycles like B2B, you might have something where there's a white paper download and then they come back to schedule a demo and then they finally sign up. So there might be a few steps. 
So I like to look and see what are those steps in that funnel process, um, because those audiences obviously all have very different needs. So if we were to look at, let's say, you know, people that downloaded the white paper, I'd probably, you know, create an audience of them and then create an audience of people that signed up for the demo. Because I want to know, you know, from a steps perspective, I want to be able to speak to these people differently. Because if they downloaded a white paper, but they have not set up a demo yet, then that's the message I want to go to them next with. If they signed up for the demo, but they didn't sign up for a free trial, then I want to talk to them about the free trial. So I'm trying to get a sense for what is their buying process like? What are the different needs in in those steps? Because we're going to want to talk to those people differently. So I'm usually looking for things like not just the time periods, but then also the conversion points. So if it's a multi-step conversion process, we make sure that we're aligning our messaging with, um, you know, what the people have already done on the site. Excellent. And this could be hits to specific pages. It could Mm -hmm. be certain actions that they take, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you can kind of do stuff like that with content grouping. Um, this is really helpful if you have a blog of some kind that covers a couple different topics, or if you sell a few different products, um, you know, you can create custom audiences based off the URLs they visited. So sometimes, what we'll do is say, we, you know, we're going to create um, custom audiences off of these five blog posts and we'll run them all in the same ad set because it's all the same subject matter. It's just different blog posts. We're talking to them about like the exact thing that they were looking at as opposed to if you have a blog that covers, you know, 50 different topics, you're, you're keeping it relevant to what they looked at. This is really interesting because I don't think I've ever heard anyone say this to me yet. So for example, we're obviously a big you know, media company, if you will. We have mm-hmm. a lot of traffic that hits our site on all these different articles that we publish. If we knew we were selling a product, for example, on Facebook ads, which we're not, but if we did, we could start to basically, what I'm hearing you say is uh, identify all the URLs of all the pages that have how-to articles on Facebook ads. Exactly. Put them into a custom audience inside of Facebook and let them grow. And then when we're ready to market to those people, we can market to those people. It's not cold, but kind of warm, right? Exactly. Yep. Cause you already know that they're, they kind of raised their hand and said, I'm interested in this, in this information. Is there a way to do that without actually knowing the actual URLs? Can you, is Facebook smart enough to say any URL that contains this keyword, put it only in a if it's set up that way. Yeah, you could. So you could say, um, you can create it uh, based on the ref- the URL that they visited, which can be like what they call a wild card. So it doesn't have to be the exact URL. It can be URL contains, you know, forward slash Facebook ads or, you know, wh- whatever. Oh, cool. Whatever common thing was in that URL. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, that's really useful. Yeah, it's super useful. And that's why I always tell people to like try and be consistent about how you name your URLs. We're trying, I mean, obviously for SEO purposes, you want it anyway, but if you know that you're going to have natural content groupings like that, try and keep them in the title and the the referrer URL because it makes it so much easier to amplify content and then amplify products to people based on the content that they've consumed. Now, this is a question that's a little technical, but maybe not super technical. If you have a content grouping, let's say it's articles that contain Facebook ads, mm-hmm. and then you've got another grouping that's like been to the website in the last seven days, can you kind of combine those together or how does that work? Yeah, you can. So there's, there's kind of an and or thing that exists. So when you set up an ad set and you specify custom audiences, um, you have the power to set up the audience you want to target. And then you can also set up exclusions. So when you start thinking through your retargeting, that's where that stuff becomes important because to your point, if they, you know, the person that visited the last seven days 
And if they read something about Facebook ads, you might want to talk to them differently versus someone that visited Facebook ads, but they haven't been to your site in the past seven days. Right. right so right. they're, they're in different kind of sections of the buying journey. So you can definitely create different combinations. And a lot of times what I wind up doing is creating, and I think I talked about this when I was, um, on last year, but I end up kind of creating this content sheet where I, I figure out like what retargeting segment I've made, what content is going to be the best for them based on what they've done. And a lot of times you can find a whole bunch of different combinations and it can also help if you have small audiences. Um, if you have a couple different things like that, that they may have done, it can help make them bigger or smaller as needed. How long does a custom audience kind of stay before it fades out? And do you have the option to kind of make it fade out after a certain period you of time? You do. Yeah. Um, as, as I recall, I think you can go back as far as a year. Oh, wow. Um, right okay. now it's either six months or a year. I should know that off the top of my head, but it's, it's been a while since I've gone that far back. Um, but yeah, you can have them for a while. So it's, it's actually really helpful to have for things like, um, if you're a retailer, especially during gifting season, like with, um, Q4, you know, you have a lot of people that buy from you that don't buy from you year round. You know, you have a lot of women that buy in men's sites and you're not going to see them again until next Christmas or father's day. Um, but that's another thing that you can hang on to is if you create uh, custom audiences during certain times of year, or, you know, if, if they visited like a gift guide during the holidays or something that's not, you know, normal content, that can also be really useful to create a custom audience off, off of, because then you can use them during other times of year. So like in my example, if you're a men's retailer and you know, you had it, let's say you had a gift guide that you were driving traffic to during the holidays. Most of them were probably people that were not shopping for themselves. So you can create a custom audience off of those people that visited that URL. And then, you know, six months later for father's day, you can run remarketing ads to those people. Um, and you don't even have to say that you're remarketing. It's just that you know that they've bought gifts in the past from you. So there's some sneaky things like that. If you can think through your marketing that far ahead, you can use retargeting for things way, way, way down the line that may not even be a factor today. When you set up a, when you, presuming people that are listening, I've had the Facebook pixel on their site for a year. Yep. When you set up these audiences, is it smart enough to go back and create them from scratch or does it just start from the moment you set them up? It starts from the moment. Let me think it will go back, but I can't recall if it goes as bad. Like if you set it for a year ago. It probably doesn't go that far back back because now I want to say it does it in like the attribution window time period. Yeah. So probably within 30 days or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what other parts of your method are there? Cause I know we've been talking about content groupings and, and all that fun stuff. Is there any other part of the method that we should talk about? I mean, that's usually the main thing I tell people to get started. Um, and when you start running these, you're going to start to see very big differences in how they perform. So I always tell people, try not to get too in love (laughs) with any one of those audiences because inevitably some of them will let you down. Um, and it may be something where some of them might not just, just might not be big enough. So you have to wait longer until it collects more traffic. But that's why I usually go ahead and just create them because once they're created, they'll just keep collecting for the time period that you tell them to. So if there's something you think you might want to use in three months, just create it today. You know what I mean? Like I try and brainstorm as many remarketing audiences as I can or retargeting. I use them interchangeably. But um, I try and think of as many as I can up front so that even if I'm not using them, it's in the background. It's collecting data for me. Now, when we prepared for this interview, One of the coolest things that you told me about, which I'd never heard before, was the way that you're using Google UTM parameters to allow remarketing. And Mm -hmm. um, what I'd like to do is um, have you kind of explain how you're doing that. But let me just give a quick overview of what 
UTMs are for people that don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. um, source, medium, and campaign are three variables that Google allows you to append to any URL. And uh, for example, the source could be Google, the um, medium could be uh, ads, and the campaign could be the specific ad that you're running, right? So all that data can be appended to any URL that you send to your website. So that's what a UTM is. Now, what I'd love to hear from your perspective is how are you using UTMs? Because I think this is a fascinating discussion. Yeah, I, this is like when I get into major geek mode. So um, one of the things, the reason I started doing this was because for LinkedIn, you know, it's such great targeted traffic, but it is so expensive. And it was really hard to just kind of like drive that $8 click from LinkedIn and not really have a great way to retarget them because they would just, you know, I'd have retargeting audiences set up in Facebook but they might be going to URLs where lots of other sources were going. But the LinkedIn traffic, I know that those are the professionals that I want. So it's a super valuable audience. So I figured out that when you set up custom audiences with Facebook, it reads those UTMs. So the only thing that ever really reads UTMs is it's really made for analytics um, because it'll bucket into your campaign names. It basically tells it how to organize your media for you. It doesn't really do anything to the traffic other than just know what to call it so that when you as a user log in, you can see that audience and its information. So it occurred to me, I'm like, you know, we're tagging for LinkedIn stuff so that we can read it in analytics. Why can't we just use that referral URL for other things? So I went into Facebook and I created a custom audience and I created it so that the the web address had to include the UTM sources that I had laid out for LinkedIn. And I was like, well, let's just see if it reads it. And sure enough, it started populating an audience. And so it gave me the opportunity to create remarketing audiences specific to that expensive traffic so that I wasn't just kind of going all in on LinkedIn and being like, man, I hope they buy someday. <laughs> but it allowed me to A, remarket people that I knew came from LinkedIn but B, I knew what professions we were targeting, so I could address that in the Facebook ads so that, you know, if we were targeting doctors or if we're targeting, you know, financial planners or whatever we're targeting, we know that they're seeing this because they came in through that LinkedIn ad. So it allowed us to make the ad copy so specific to what they do every day. We knew their pain points and it was way more accurate than trying to do it through Facebook's somewhat janky <laughs> job title targeting that they have. Now, people that are into Google Analytics, this is mind boggling. And I, I wanna just kind of open up the kimono a little bit and explain some of the possibilities. So here at Social Media Examiner, we use UTM parameters on literally every single thing that we do. So for example, we're recording this just days after Social Media Marketing World and Susan and I were both there and recovering. <laughs> but, but even like the ads inside the conference guide for some of our products, which just have a simple URL, there's UTM parameters on the end of that. And, and in those UTM parameters, we know that they came from a physical ad inside of a conference guide. So we know, for example, that if someone typed in that URL, that they only got that URL off of our physical ad in a physical piece of paper that they had in front of them. Using Facebook now, we could remarket to the people that we know for a fact visited from the physical conference guide. And we could give them a highly customized ad knowing that they've been there from that source. And previously that was not possible, 
right? And if you exactly. start you start thinking it's, about this, it's emails, it's ads from any platform, Pinterest, exactly. whatever, right? And all of a sudden, now you can, as long as you're using UTMs and you're you're coding them properly, now you can remarket to anyone from any campaign anywhere. Yes. Using Facebook. Correct. Huge. Yep. So yeah. How- and it's that's why I tell people be specific in your UTMs too. Like it's always kind of sad if I go to someone that's a big spender and they've driven a ton of traffic and it's like it just says like you it's UTM source and medium and there's no other information like what campaign it was and there's right. just, you know, hundreds of thousands of visits and there's no way to break them down any further. Um, so I always tell people utilize those UTMs cause you never know when they're going to come in handy for stuff like this. So you said earlier, you got to have at least 200 people in the audience in order for it to populate. Is mm-hmm. that correct? So, so in some cases you're not going to get that obviously, right. With, mm-hmm. with really granular campaigns, but, yep. um, but you could potentially with the medium, right. Or the source. Yes. Yeah. And, um, that, that's super helpful to, um, you know, it, sometimes it can be helpful if you need to combine different audiences. So like, let's say I ran on LinkedIn and I ran, um, four different campaigns. I could create custom audiences based off those campaigns. But to your point, if each one of those is too small, I can put all four of them in one ad set. And as long as they add up to more than 200, then I can start showing ads. So you can combine audiences to reach that minimum if you, if you need to. Um, would you do that by using the medium or the source, or would you do that by saying, um, these are the four rules. And if they contain any of these, then they're all, I would do medium and source in those instances where the traffic's really low. Um, but what I would do is, I mean, you could still make it really granular. So you could say, you know, medium was this source was this, and this was the campaign. And I'd set it up for all four, but if each one of those are too small, just because I'm specifying the campaign, I could take all four of them and put them into an ad set. And if their totals with all four of them together in an ad set are 200, I can remarket to them then. So I kind of err on the side of, I'd rather create more granular custom audiences and then if they're not big enough, if they don't reach that 200 mark in the ad set, you can combine different audiences to get there. Okay. So at this point, we've talked about um, creating content groupings on your website based mm-hmm. on URLs that they hit. We've talked about um, creating custom audiences from uh, your UTM parameters from your own, mm-hmm. own campaigns. Um, we've talked about just you know everyday people hitting the event and 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 whether it was in the last seven days or the last 30 days, depending on the time lag data from Google analytics. So once we've set up all these audiences and they're starting to populate, like, what do we do? What are the, what's the next part of the process, if you will? Yeah. So one of the questions that I get a lot from people is how much should I be spending on retargeting versus top of funnel? And that kind of plays into the, the answer to the question you have. Um, a lot of times there's a few things I'm looking for when I first start Um, the namely is what does the frequency look like? So as I mentioned before, if you set your budget really high, but it's not really in line with the size of your audience, you are going to hammer those poor people (laughs) with ads a million times a day. Um, there's no way to do frequency capping unless you're running a reach campaign. And I'm not really a big fan of those. So if you're running, you know, um, site traffic or whatever your objective is, you can't cap the frequency. Really? Um, That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, you can only do it in the reach campaigns, which is annoying because it means it's to- you're totally capable of doing it. They just don't let you. <laughs> huh. 
So um, I'll usually watch to see what my frequency looks like on a daily basis. By the way, explain it, what frequency caps are for people that may not understand Absolutely, what that means. yeah. So frequency is the number of times a user saw your ad um, on average in a given time period. So usually what I'll do is I'll look at it for like the past day or two. So I just, I just adjust the dates um, in the ads manager. And I have the frequency column and it'll tell me how often these people are seeing my ads on average. I like to keep it between like two to three tops. Um, I've taken over accounts where frequency was like 12, 13, 14. It was crazy. So if you see that kind of frequency happening, you probably have too much budget allocated to remarketing just yet. Um, I usually end up moving the budget down until the frequency kind of gets in line. But the thing you have to remember is that the longer, you know, especially if you turn on top of funnel efforts, those remarketing audiences are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So you'll be able to spend more money on them, but just not at first. So I always tell people right when you launch, watch to see what that frequency looks like, because it's going to be a pretty good indication of how big the audience is and how much you can spend on them. Um, the other thing you want to look at is the, um, the kind of the placement performance. There's going to be massive differences in your CPM based on whether it's newsfeed or if it's marketplace or if it's, you know, um, Instagram stories. Yeah. Instagram stories, any Instagram newsfeed, any, any of that stuff, there's going to be drastic differences in cost. Um, so as those retargeting audiences start to fire off conversions for you, pay really close attention to what's actually converting because I see humongous differences in um, retargeting placement performance. And sometimes it's totally different than what you see top of funnel. Like I'll, I'll see top of funnel. I will not see a lot of conversions for things like in stream, but I will on retargeting. So there's certain things you'll find on retargeting, like the desktop right hand ads that, you know, used to be everything. And now people barely notice them. They don't do well on cold traffic. I frequently have them do really well on retargeting. So you have to kind of reset your expectations on what you think will do well because it tends to be different when it's with an audience that knows you. So pay really close attention to those placements and how they're performing because that's the other area where I see people end up losing a lot of money. When you do a lot of your advertising, are you heavily reliant on this UTM stuff we've been talking about? Is that kind of like a core part of what you do or is that just part of what you do? It's part of what I do. It usually becomes a bigger part um, depending on what folks have going on another channel. So I usually run all paid media channels for clients. I mean, Facebook is my expertise, but I do right. LinkedIn and all other kinds of stuff. Um, so I kind of have to temper it based on what I know they're doing top of funnel because sometimes that'll that'll influence things. You know, it's like, well, we might turn on display and we, they might be getting traffic that's not great. And so um, if we see that the traffic's not performing well, we might have to adjust the custom audiences that we do. So it's helpful in a, you know, a quality per, from a quality perspective. Um, it's helpful from a messaging perspective. So I will usually, like I said, I, I like to create a lot of those audiences up front and I may not use them at first, but I'd rather they just start gathering the data. Um, so it's kind of become a best practice for me to just look and see what else they're running. Um, if they're running things, you know, in-house or things that I'm not running, I will ask them to do UTM codes. Um, because if I look in, you know, Google analytics and I see that they might be driving, you know, something from native, that's really poor quality or whatever it might be. I don't want any of that, you know, influencing my remarketing audiences. So I also use it as an exclusionary tactic. So, um, back to the Wenograd method, as we're calling it, um, <laughs> yeah. I know that when we originally chatted before this interview, you said that there's some steps starting with kind of who is it that you're trying to target. And then what did they click on and so on and so forth. Can you kind of kind of walk us through, um, you know, 
because I think a lot of people can easily create the audiences, but mm-hmm. then it's like, what do you do with this? You know, this is the part that where I think hearing from you would be helpful. Yeah. And I think it people, it, it's funny with retargeting kind of seems like people either just do past 30 days of visitors or they get so hyper granular that they're not big enough <laughs> to retarget. And there's not really anything in between. A lot of times what I'll do is, you know, I try and figure out the, the buying journey piece of it. Like we talked about, um, because you know, giving the same message over and over to people, you want to be persistent in your brand's message because you want to make sure that it's clear what your brand stands for, or what it is you're offering, but doing it the same way every time gets old really fast. So, you know, when we look at things like the content and the creative that we're showing, um, with retargeting, it's also super important that however you decide to package up that messaging, I always encourage people to really test all the different creative types there are too, because that's another place where you're going to see a difference between remarketing versus prospecting. Um, so things like carousels tend to do really well. Video tends to not do as well for conversions. So there's things like that, that you'll, you need to test and learn. I mean, there's best practices, but it doesn't mean they work for everybody. Um, but when you look at things like aligning messaging, a lot of times brands have really great content that they're not using. So I think there's always this push of I'm retargeting. So I have to get them to buy. But if you know that it's going to take a little while to get them to buy, sometimes you're better off retargeting with some of the other great content you have to continue to establish authority. So if you start running retargeting and you see people still aren't buying, um, I usually recommend testing some some retargeting that doesn't focus on buying, but instead just continues to provide some more value before you try and sell anything. So I think the key really is for us to understand based on the action taken by the audience like where they are on the journey, right? That's yeah. got to be everything, right? So, yeah. and I would imagine this is where most people mess it up, right? Because they just assume that if someone, um, like you said earlier, if someone visited a page in the last 30 days, you just assume that they're a hot prospect, but yeah. they, but they're probably they not. Buy. They must want to buy my yeah, stuff. Yeah, pro- <laughs> they probably aren't. So like, you know, like, can you give us an example, maybe, maybe pick one that you've done for yourself or one of your clients and just kind of walk us through a little bit you know, kind of retargeting campaign that you've done so people can kind of wrap their brain around this? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll pick one of the longer sales cycle because those actually tend to be tough. And I think those are the ones where they give up on, um, on Facebook because they're like, it just doesn't work because they didn't convert within a week or something, you know, they have this crazy expectation. Um, so especially for things, you know, if you look at things like people that are coaches or people that are, selling something that is not necessarily a practical purchase that people would just need. Um, there's a lot of emotion involved in it. And then there's just a lot of, you know, authority building that has to be done. So if you, you know, are running something where there's a multi-touch atmosphere, um, a lot of times what I'll do is I usually, like I always preach, if it's something that you know is a longer sales cycle or higher price tag at the very top of the funnel, don't try and start with conversions right away. Um, you're going to make a, it's really expensive. So if you're going after conversion campaigns, you might get some low hanging fruit, but you're going to pay an arm and a leg for it. But the other thing that happens with that is that in a longer sales cycle, you know, Facebook is basically going to identify these are the people likely to buy, but there's a whole other vast amount of people in your targeting that could be likely to buy. It's just Facebook doesn't think they're likely to buy anytime soon. Doesn't mean you don't want to talk to those people though. So I always encourage people start with something that's going to help you build remarketing pools. And this has been my thing for you know the past six months to a year. Yes, our job is to sell stuff, 
But our job is also to build remarketing pools. That is like, if you're going to go into Facebook, I want you to go into it thinking about how can I build people that I can continue to talk to? I need groups that I can keep talking to. So if you go into it with that in mind, it actually helps a lot because then you're not trying to be everything to everybody, right? If you do something like that, you say, okay, I'm going to start with, let's say, you know, people that watched X amount of my video. That's going to be my top of funnel goal. So when you remarket to them, you can start to look at things like, what was the video that they watched? So in the longer sales cycle stuff like B2B or if it's coaching, did they watch a video about how to make more money? Did they watch a video about, you know, how to streamline their sales process? Like what was it that they watched in that video? So you know that that's the content that they got hooked with. So what you may want to follow up with then is instead of going after them and saying, hey, buy my $300 course, it might be time for them to read something or see something more about what you've done. Hmm. So a lot of times, this is where I tell people that's a really good um, following up with a video view with something that drives to the site. And that's like, you know, blog purposed, or if you have like an evergreen piece that, uh, you know, has always had really strong feedback, I would drive to that. You need to coax people into buying and give them a decent amount of information because the other issue you run into is they might watch your one video and they're going to forget about you three days later. So you have to willing, be willing to be consistent, but then relevant. So if you decide, whatever you start to decide, I'm sorry, whatever you decide to start with, whether it's a video or if it's, you know, a white paper, pay attention to a, what it is you're saying, what's the topic and B test a couple things around that topic, because you may find that there's certain things, even in a nuanced way, people respond to better. Um, but a lot of times what I'll do is start with something like a video and then create a custom audience off of people that watch the video before I ever even try and get them to the site. Then I try and coax them to the site with retargeting with some deeper information. But, likely, is, but likely free, right? Yes, exactly. I, I don't really advocate. And it's hard because you want to, everyone wants to sell something quick, but these are generally very low cost ways to get people to your site. So I'm all about paying a lot less money to build the remarketing pool and then save those expensive CPMs for when I know they're going to be ready to buy. Um, so I usually kind of interact with them on Facebook first, then try and coax them to the site. And sometimes with the site, I'll reach, I'll retarget, you know, once they visited the site, I may still do one more ad to people that visited with something like a carousel that shows like five different blogs, five different blog posts on different topics and mm. watch to see what they click. So you can get a lot of learnings from the retargeting. Um, but I always tell people to try and be patient and learn how to a consistently do your brand message. So if, again, if you start with a video, if there's visuals and what is the topic, then remarket with a piece of content, because then you have a whole other subset of people that went to the site. So that's where you can start to create those audiences of, Hey, these people were remarketed to, um, you know, based on the fact they watched a video. That's also where UTMs come in handy. So I may say in this example, I'm going to create an audience of people that watched 50% or more of this video. Then I'll create a custom audience of, you know, here's my people that watched 50% or more. I'm going to drive to this blog post on my site and I'm going to UTM tag it specifically for that group of people. Perfect. So I know that they saw my video. I know that they came to the site that's a whole lot more knowledge than just they watched 50% of my video. I'm going to try and sell them a $500 coaching course, right? I mean, you are getting a feel for how ingrained these people are and how, you know, responsive they are. They're self-selecting further and further down your funnel and retargeting helps you do that. And then at a certain point, if they've gone through like maybe three of these 
freebie content mm-hmm. offers or whatever, knowing it's a more complex sales cycle, then you might do what next? Then at that point, you know, I look at what you have to offer. So a lot of times you'll see this in things like coaching funnels where there'll be an initial offer of like, you know, $50 or $75. Um, there'll be a lower tier offer. Usually all that does is just make back the initial media spend. Um, right. but if you're not in that situation, a lot of times that's when you, it's time to kind of go in for something different where either you want to capture their email, you want to encourage them to set up a demo. Like at that point, it feels a lot more natural for you to kind of push for that next step. And it doesn't come off as pushy because they've clearly shown that what you're providing is valuable to them. So it's just inviting them to say, here's the next level of value. And that way you're, you're both participants in it. Instead of you selling something to them, you're just continuing to offer more and more information. Well, um, Susan, this is absolutely fascinating. Um, (laughs) I would love it if you could share where people can discover more about all the great things that you're doing. Absolutely. Um, I, if you Google my name, there's a lot of, um, information out there. Um, I have some of this actually in my latest search engine journal post. I have a whole post on how to learn more about your audiences, um, using Facebook. And there's some information in there about the UTM tagging. Um, so there's a ton of information out there about that. And then obviously, um, social media marketing world, I was just there. So (laughs) they weren't there. They just missed me. Um, but I am at a bunch of conferences throughout the year. So, um, feel free to look me up if you're local to one I will be at. I would love it if you attend and come say hi in person. Is there a particular like social handle you want to send them to if they want to reach out to you? Absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter practically all the time. <laughs> so you can find me at Susan E. Dub. That's Susan E. D. as in Daniel, U. B. as in boy. Um, I always respond to direct messages and you can just shout at me on there and I would be happy to chat. Thank you so much, Susan Wendergrad, for coming on and sharing your awesome wisdom with us. Thank you again for having me. My pleasure. Well, I hope you found a lot of value in today's interview. We take all the notes for you. You can simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash 351. And don't forget about the Social Media Marketing Society. Check it out at smmarketingsociety.com. Enrollment will be closing soon. It will not be open again until 2020. This brings us to the end of another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.